Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. What are you looking at? What are you seeing in life in this world? What are you thinking about? Show me what you look at. Show me what you admire. Show me who you want to be like. Show me what your dreams are. All your ego, all your pride, calling my own shots, making your own decisions. You just have to look up to heaven. Look up to heaven. Look to God. Look to El, El Yan. The truth is, God really does have the whole world in his hands. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Is God in Control?, and shares why you can trust that the sovereign God of the universe is taking care of you. So stick around. The Winning Walk begins in just a moment. Now, here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Is God in Control? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the word for God there, to the surprise of anybody who would know the Jews, is a plural name for God. That's our word, Elohim. And it tells us that even though the Jews were strictly monotheistic in their faith, one God, one God. They said it every day in the Shema as they would quote Deuteronomy 6, Shema, one God, one God. They were a one God people, but yet the first name for God was Elohim, which is a plural name. What does that say? It says that the Trinity was preexistent, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the Trinity was involved in the creation. And that informs us that Jesus Christ didn't just come into being at Bethlehem, Christmas, he pre-existed. Colossians 1 tells us that he holds all of the solar system, all of creation together. So we see our God is Elohim. And now we look at a second name for God. You see it? Posted up here, he is El Elyon. He is the God of everything. He is the sovereign God. He is in control of everything. Now, the problem with, that we have with this name for God is that we like to run our own lives, right? I like to be in control. Are you sort of a controlled person? Most of us are. I'll make that choice. I, I, I will go. I will handle it. It's up to me. And therefore, we are self, self-sufficient and not God-sufficient. Most of us pride ourselves. I'm self-sufficient. We hear that all. It's sort of a thing of pride. I'm, I'm self. I don't have to depend on anyone. I'm already self-sufficient with no concept of being God-sufficient. Therefore, most of us have a problem with P-R-I-D-E, pride, ego. Now, we're going to look at a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, 
who was Phi Beta Kappa in egotism. He was a megalomaniac. It strikes all of us, even when we're doing good stuff. Remember, a few years back, it was Christmas. I was exhausted, run out of bullets. We'd had 10,523 worship services on Christmas Eve. <laughs> I heard of a family that had special needs way back in a ghetto, and I got some money together and some presents and took one of my kids with me. They were small, and it was cold and getting dark, and I went to that home and gave them a little money and some presents and food, and when I walked out, I said, there are not many Christians who would go and do something like this. How subtle is our ego and our pride, even when we do good stuff? It's deadly. And God will cut us down because he is El Elyon, sovereign. Now, I want us to read together a scripture in 1 Peter. Go to Revelation, turn left. It's a pretty good left. Chapter 5, and I want us to read the middle of verse 5 through verse 7. It's on your screens. Let's all read it together. Would you do that? Here we go. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Let's prepare for the teaching of the Word. Father, when we sit too high, we don't like it, but you cut us down. Today, we trust the Holy Spirit will deal with ego and pride that is hidden and lodged in all of us. Do a deep, profound work, we pray. Let me get out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. A brief look at L, E-L. We're not going to exhaust our study, but when you see the name E-L or the, word, the initials E-L, it stands for God. That E-L is mentioned 238 times in the Old Testament, E-L. We looked last week at the God of creation. He is El. Do you see it? El, E-L, Ohim, Elohim. And now we look at another name for God. I want you to notice it. It is E-L, E-L-Y-O-N, L-L. You've got E-L, E-L twice. You've got a double God there, right, in the Hebrew. You have God, God. And it's used for Almighty God, the high God. And when you have in Hebrew a double name, God, God, E-L-E-L, see it? E-L-E-L. 
This means the top of the top. There's no higher. He is sovereign. He is the boss. He is the God who is in control. Even when we see a, a heinous event, those individuals was killed by a madman. Obviously, the work of satanic powers in that sick young man. But we see in that situation where a judge was killed and other innocents were killed, and that little nine-year-old girl and a congressman was wounded. And so we have so many questions. And we'll not get the answers in this life, but we're thankful this life is not all that there is. The Bible tells us in eternity it'll all be sorted out, and we'll understand even the acts of evil in our day because God is El Elyon. He is sovereign. Even when man does stupid, sinful, heinous, demonic things, God somehow still works out his overriding purpose in all of our lives. Make no mistake about it. He is El Elyon. He is sovereign. He is a God who is in control. And so as we look at this, let's do a brief uh, historical study just to see when this word is first mentioned. Look at the, uh, Genesis, the book of beginnings. And uh, look, if you would, in chapter 14. The first time this name for God is used is by Melchizedek. Remember him? We studied Hebrews. He's that mystical-like uh, servant of the Lord, Christ-like figure in the Bible. Look at verse 18, Genesis chapter 14. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God Most High. There's our word, translating English, God Most High. El Elyon, God Most High, the top of the top. He blessed him and said, Bless be Abram of God. There's our word again, Most High. El Elyon, the top of the top. Look at who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So you have in verse 18, our word, you have in verse 19, our word, you have in verse 20, our word. And what is this priest saying? He's talking to Abram because Abram also worshiped El Elyon, the God who is sovereign, and Melchizedek also worshiped that, so they were in the same family. And he was reminding Abraham, Abram as he was then, that you've just experienced a great victory but not of yourselves. It was a victory as a result of him who is sovereign, El Elyon, the sovereign God. You think you've done something, you've accomplished something, you know something, you have something. It all comes from the hands of El Elyon. Remember when Jesus was before Pilate? Remember that? And Pilate looks at him and says, paraphrase, you know, Jesus, the way you're responding to me, don't you know that I have the power to take your life or to spare your life? Remember how Jesus answered that? He said to Pilate, you have no power except that which was given you by El Elyon, he who is 
sovereign. He is the top of the top. That's the only reason you have power. That's the only reason any of us have life or breath or our heart beats another moment or our mind works for another second. It is a gift. It is in the superintendence of and the sovereignty of Almighty God who is in control. Now we see the next time this word is used is just in the following verse there. It's used by Abram. Abram has experienced a great victory. Uh, he has bailed out once again his nephew Lot. Remember, Lot was the one who pitched his tent, and Abram was the one who built his altar. Everywhere they went, read the whole story of Abram and Lot running around Israel there in the southern part. <laughs> and every time you read his, they go to a new place. What does it say? Abram built his altar. Lot pitched his tent. Abram built his altar, Lot pitched his tent. So, but they were very prosperous, and so they divided up their flocks, and Abram said to Lot, Lot, you pick out the land you, where you want to live, where do you, where you want your family to live. And Lot looked around, north, south, east, and west. He looked toward the Jordan Valley, that's the Dead Sea now, and he said, you know, they've got that city there, those two great prosperous cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and boy, there's fertile land there. I think we're going to head that way. That's where I want my parcel of land. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. So many people make the choices as to where they'll live and with their families on the basis of sight. Where can I make more money? Where can I be more prosperous? Where can I have more entertainment? Where can I really express myself? Instead of the basis of faith, where would God have me to worship? Where is that community, that place where my life will count for significance and my family can be brought up in a church that teaches about? Where is that spot? You see, we see by sight and we see by faith. Lot saw by sight. And you're reading the Bible. It's a great, great, tragic story. It's a story of gradualism. You know the problem with gradualism? God doesn't say, the devil doesn't come and say, hey, I want you to go rob the bank in the morning. He says, no, I want you to pad your expense account. Everybody else does. See, he starts with the little bitty transgressions. You stay with him, he'll take you right, 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 right down to the bottom. And so Lot, it says in the Bible, he turned toward Sodom, then he moved toward Sodom, still pitching his tent, not building his altar. Finally, he moved in the outskirts of Sodom, and finally, him and his family moved right in the middle of Sodom, and then Sodom moved right in the middle of them. That's the way it happens, isn't it? We just gradually end up and man, what happened? What happened to my morals? What happened to my ideas? What happened to my dreams? What happened to my purposes? What's happened to my peace? What happened to my sleep? What's happened to these relationships? And then we see as a result of this, Abram goes and bails them out. El Elyon gave him a victory. Abram wasn't small enough to defeat the king that had destroyed and taken the five-king coalition that had taken Lot and his family off. And now the king of Sodom, though Abram just saved his life, saved his whole being, he said to Abram, and by the way, he had no way to negotiate anything. He said, Abram, I'll tell you what, let me have the people that I'll be their king over back, and you can have all the spoils. Ooh, boy. Abram had it all. He didn't have to negotiate with him. 
But look what Abram said, and this is another use of our tremendous word about God we're doing today. He said, the king of Sodom to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Verse 21, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to thee, there's our word, Lord God most high, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a a sandal thong or anything that of yours for fear you'll say I made Abram rich. Abram said, I'm not going to let some pagan determine my destiny. Everything I have and everything I do not have and who I am and what I'm about, it's a result of the grace and the mercy and the benevolence of El Elyon, him who is sovereign. Now, you have this most high God all the way through the Old Testament. But the place where I want us to look at is in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter number four. Remember the setting of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar went down to Jerusalem, conquered the city. And by the way, chapter one, verse two of Daniel really is the theme of the book. That's where the All of Nebuchadnezzar, his boys got in big problem. They took all the stuff, all the gold, all the silver, all the vessels out of the temple and put them in the pagan temple there in Babylon. No, that was saying, my God's bigger than your God. We destroyed you. We've taken choice people from there. They were taking all that's valuable out of the place of worship. We've given it to our Our gods, therefore, our pagan gods are stronger than this God who you say is El Elyon, see? But that was temporary, as we'll see. And remember, they took with them choice young men. We don't know how many exactly, but we know four names. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, remember? Took them back and engulfed them in the culture of the Babylonians, taught them the Babylonian language, taught them the Babylonian traditions, gave them new godless names, pagan names, changed their names. And they were to be leaders of the Jews and also leaders in the courts. This is what Nebuchadnezzar did. And now we look in chapter 4 of Daniel is, by the way, in my opinion, one of the most staggering chapters in all the Bible. Chapter 4 of Daniel. You know why? It was written by Nebuchadnezzar, every word of it. (laughs) That'll shock you. Here's a godless, pagan, megalomaniac, despot, vicious, jealous, brilliant, powerful, a murderer, a warrior. He's written a whole chapter in the Bible. Can you believe it? But it's a great chapter. It's a fabulous chapter. It is Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual autobiography. He tells us about the, you would say, chess match over big stakes he had with God because Nebuchadnezzar says, I am sovereign of everything I see and everything I touch. I'm in charge. I am sovereign. And El Elyon says, no, no, O king. 
I am God and I am in control of everything. And we see the end of the story in chapter 4. You can outline chapter 4 easily. It's probably already done in your Bibles. You got the, the section beginning with verse uh, 41 of chapter 4 of Daniel. Um, and it goes, this is the vision of the great tree. It goes verse 41 all the way through verse uh, 18. It's a vision. It's the vision of the dream. It's a vision of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Look at verse 19 all the way through uh, down to verse uh, 27. It says Daniel's interpretation of the dream. Then you got verse 28 all the way down through uh, verse 33. It says the realization, the fulfillment of the dream. And then you got verse 34 to the end of this chapter, and you have the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar, and that's the miraculous part. You got the outline. All right, you got a dream by a pagan. You got Daniel, God's man, interpreting the dream. Then you have the dream, which was a prophecy. The dream is fulfilled. Then you see the results of the dream, which is the restoration of someone who we would guess would be the writer of this old Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look at it briefly, and then I'll seek to apply it right where you and I live. Look at it in verse 41. This is the dream. Nebuchadnezzar, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace, saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Let me tell you what the dream was. By the way, you say, what is all this about God speaking to somebody in a dream? Ladies and gentlemen, God uses whatever he has to use when he wants to say something to you and me. Don't miss it. He'll use a friend. He'll use a mate. He'll use a child. He'll use health. He's, he'll use your vocation. He'll use anything he can use, even a dream, to speak to you and speak to me. Dreams were in fashion then. That's how they interpreted their pagan culture. And therefore, this dream was very significant, Nebuchadnezzar. And God used a dream. He'll use what he has to use when he wants to get through to you and me when we become so far removed from him. Now, here's what the dream was. He dreamed there was a big tree, and the tree grew and grew and grew until it went to the top of the clouds, until it covered the whole earth. This was a fabulous tree. It had all kind of fruit on it, and birds would eat of the fruit. They would nest and build their their, their nests there, and they would be honored to sit in the tree, and other animals would be under the tree, and it would shade them, and they would eat of the fruit. It was a wonderful tree of bounty and blessing and plenty for all who were connected to it. High tree, magnificent tree. And then it says, an angel came. This is a dream of Nebuchadnezzar. A heavenly watcher came down and cut down that tree. Vroom. And the tree was down. The branches, the leaves were swept away and, and the birds flew away and the animals couldn't rest and eat under the tree. And all that was left was a stump. And in that stump, they tied around it 
a brass band and they tied around it an iron band to hold that stump together where it wouldn't split because any hope for life coming back would be through that old stump. In the dream, don't touch the stump. Don't touch the stump. And then in the dream, it changes. Interesting. In verse 15, it's talking about it, the tree. And then it gets into verse 15, it talks about he. It changes from an inanimate thing in the sense of a vegetable, a tree, and it moves to a person. And he says, and this person will be exiled and will have the mind of an animal and will live for seven years as an animal. That's the dream. And this dream kept coming to Nebuchadnezzar, and he said, I've got to get interpretation. He tried all the soothsayers, the pagans of that day. Finally, he went to Daniel because Daniel had already set him straight on a couple of occasions. We don't have time to look at that. And so he goes to Daniel, and Daniel sees what the dream means. And it's wonderful, a little verse there. I'll not read it to you. Daniel steps back. He doesn't say anything for a while out of respect for the king because the king, though he was pagan and despotic and mean and vicious, somehow he'd been kind to Daniel. And Daniel stepped back. He didn't say anything. And Nebuchadnezzar said, tell me what it means. Don't worry about it. Just tell me what it means. And so Daniel interprets the dream. And this is a little bit of the interpretation. And we'll see how it plays out in just one moment. Look at the verse number 24. Daniel, this is the interpretation, O king. This is a decree of the most high. There's our word, El Elyon. He is sovereign. This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind, your dwelling place be with the beast of the field, you'll be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High, El Elyon, the sovereign God, is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And he goes on, interprets the stump as to what that means, a chance of rehabilitation. And he encourages Nebuchadnezzar to repent then, then of his pride and his ego and worship El Elyon. Nebuchadnezzar waits and does nothing and 12 months go by. Isn't God patient? That's what Johnny Cash said. Do you get that? Johnny Cash said, hey, hey, it goes on and on and on and on. You say, hey, but God's going to cut you down. God's going to cut you down. See, he's alluding right to the scripture they were talking about in that country western song. God's going to cut you down. And then we see about Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months go by. Man, he's still in power. He still built this stuff. Look what happens. This is how the vision is fulfilled. Look at verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king reflected and said, listen to the egotist. Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And let me tell you something. It was some kind of city, some kind of city. Babylon 
had a wall around it six miles in circumference. That wall was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That wall was over a football field in height, 89 feet wide, went all the way around the city, one of the wonders of the ancient world, one of only seven. Also in that city was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, and they were fabulous. They were 600 feet long, 500 feet high. They had terraces of plants and flowers and vegetation and beauty and trees, unparalleled probably in history even to this day. In the middle of the city, the Euphrates River ran. And they even had in this beautiful deep body of water, it's a fabulous body of water, they had dikes and they, they would open and close at flood time so it wouldn't affect the rest of the city. And they would take the water that overflowed from the Euphrates and they would ride it into the Tigris, which was right there. And they had in the city marble, stone, beautiful works of art. They had statues all over the city. It, it was a fabulous thing. And here is, and it's all done by Nebuchadnezzar. And he is standing there looking over 50 different fabulous pagan temples. He was saying, whoo, look what I have done with my own hands. I didn't read it. The Bible says, bang, enough is enough. And God cuts him down. He immediately has the mind of an animal. By the way, this is a psychiatric diagnosis that happens today. Suddenly people resort back to having the mind of an animal. You want to read about what happens to that in miniature, read Romans chapter 1. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. By the way, the humanistic world said we're all high-class animals anyway. They don't recognize we're humans made in the image of God, not the secular world. He had the mind of an animal. You can imagine he began to tear his clothes and make animal, this animal noises, and he ran out of the palace and, and he began to strip himself down, and finally he was naked. He was the king, the most powerful monarch in the world. No one could compete with him. No one could stand up to him. Here he was now living out in the field for seven years as an animal. And the Bible describes what he looks like. He said his hair grew and grew until it was like, it was like the feathers of an eagle. And he said his fingernails grew long. They were like the claws of a bird. I thought about Howard Hughes. Remember? He came worth over $2 billion dollars. He was a man who had everything and had nothing. Here's a man, Nebuchadnezzar, who had everything and had nothing. He lived like an animal, and he was on, on his knees and his hands. I'm sure they were callous. He was naked. He ate of the grass. He kept his head down. He was out of his mind. And this went on for seven years. It said he awakened every morning, not in the comfort of a royal bed, but the dew of heaven. He wet all over from the dew. Living with them animals, sounds like animals, out of his mind, seven years until a wonderful thing happens. This is the miracle of God's grace. Look at verse 34. But at the end of that period, 
I, Nebuchadnezzar, raise my eyes toward heaven. Remember, he's telling her this. And my reason returned to me. And I bless the Most High, El Elyon, there's our word, and praised and honored him who lives forever. What happened? Seven years down, and then he just looks up. He looks up to heaven. That's all you have to do. That's all I have to do. All to your ego, all your pride, calling my own shots, making your own decisions. You just have to look up to heaven. Show me what you look at. Show me what you admire. Show me who you want to be like. Show me what your dreams are. All you have to do is look up to heaven, and immediately what happened? His mind was cleared up. That'll happen to you and me today. Our minds, what do you see? What are you looking at? What are you seeing in life in this world? What are you thinking about? Look up to heaven. Look to God. Look to El, El Yan. He who is sovereign, and he'll clear your mind up. And then what happened? He worshiped. He said he blessed God. He praised God. He praised El, El Yan. He who is the God who controls everything. You see, he was broken, but he was healed, and he was made whole. This is a miracle of God's grace, isn't it? And that miracle still operates in your life and in mine. How do you, where are words to describe Almighty God? Where are words to describe Him who is Elohim, the God of creation? Him who is El Elyon, who is the God who controls everything, the God who is sovereign. Where do you find those words? A great preacher of the last generation named Lockridge, S.M. Lockridge. And the S stands for Shadrach. The M stands for Meshach. Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. What a great name. And he was a great servant of the Lord. And in talking about the name of God, in talking about this, he has a wonderful recitation that just elevates and honors the Lord. And this is his words. He said, he is the king of the Jews. He is the king of Israel. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of the ages. He is the king of heaven. He is the king of glory. Oh, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. That's my king. And I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means or measure can provide his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into vision the coastline of his shoreless supplies. Oh, that's my king. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He is imperially powerful. He is impartially merciful. Do you know him? That's my king. He 
He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizons of the world. He's God's son. He is the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands on the title of himself. He's august and he's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He is the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the miracle of the age. He's the only one qualified to be called all-sufficient Savior. And I wonder, do you know him today? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tired. He sympathizes and he saves and he strengthens and he sustains and he guards and he guides and he heals the sick and he cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards those who are diligent. He beautifies the meager. I wonder, do you know him? Well, this is my king. He is the key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Ah, do you know him well? His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is timeless. His mercy is everlasting. And his love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Oh, I wish I could describe him to you. He is indescribable. He is incomprehensible. He is invisible. He is irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. Oh, the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. That's my king. And thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and forever and forever. And when you run out of forever, there's more good God almighty. He is Elohim. He is creator. He is El Elyon. He is sovereign. He's in control of everything. That's our key. That's the Lord God Almighty. He is Elohim. He is creator. He is El Elyon. He is sovereign. That's our king. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Now, it's great to have Dr. Young right here in the studio to answer a couple of questions today. Dr. Young, Nebuchadnezzar had all his power stripped away because he refused to acknowledge who was really in control. How can listeners use whatever power and influence they have to glorify God instead? It's a daily walk, fresh every morning. I wake up in the morning, I hit my knees, my wife and I, we hit our knees, we get up together, and we pray. And we begin by saying, the problem that we have is self, so we have a little acrostic, 
Self, S, surrender, E, empty, L, love, S-E-L-F, and the last one is to fill me with your spirit. We begin our day like that, and we end our day like that with a little prayer that gets us in tune with who we are and how he can use us. Guess what? Your life, though you will not ever know it, will be filled with the touch and the glory of God. Very helpful. Thank you, Dr. Young. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.